It's Lucy. Right, time is now 2.34. And let's turn to the last uh, guest and last topic of today. Now, in the next 15 minutes or so, we are commemorating World NGO Day by talking about the challenges faced by NGOs. Now, World NGO Day is an international calendar day, which is uh, annually observed on the 27th of February. And World NGO Day aims to inspire people to become more actively involved within NGOs, charities, uh, non-profit organizations, and also civil society organizations. And also to encourage a greater cooperation and symbiosis uh, between these different sectors, uh, the public and the private sectors. Uh, the concept of World NGO Day is to celebrate and commemorate and also collaborate with various NGOs around the world and also the people behind them. And with that, I'd like to welcome our guest on the program, Victoria Wisniewski Otero, who is the founder and CEO of Resolve, which is a platform that tackles the root causes of inequality by investing and helping emerging community leaders to drive social change and a more inclusive Hong Kong. Uh, Victoria, welcome to the program and thank you very much indeed for joining us this afternoon. Hi, it's my pleasure. So I, I want to sort of break uh, this interview into two parts. Uh, sort of, uh, first of all, the setting up of NGOs here in Hong Kong uh, and, and also the status of it, because uh, maybe a lot of people uh, know that a lot of NGOs here in Hong Kong are also charities, also registered as charities, uh, your NGO included. And the second part, I'd like to also talk about the challenges uh, faced by them. So perhaps let's talk a little bit more about uh, the, the setting up of NGOs uh, here in Hong Kong. What was the process uh, for you like? So we set up in October 2017. That is when we became a legal entity. Actually, to what you just mentioned, Hong Kong currently doesn't have a charity law, like, say, in some other jurisdictions. However, um, an entity, a legal entity, it could be set up, for example, we're set up as a company by limited guarantee. And then what we needed to do is get confirmation from Inland Revenue Department of charity uh, tax exemption status. So Section 88 uh, is um, the ordinance it relates back to. Um, so that's how we set up. And basically, uh, we found it in October 2017. Of course, before then, there was a lot of preliminary work to put all the paperwork together. We were really fortunate to get pro bono legal assistance in that process through a corporate law firm, which I highly would recommend to anyone who's looking to set up. And um, from there, we had to actually apply for Section 88 tax exemption status, which took about six months to obtain. And I've been told that that is actually pretty quick. Um, I'm not sure now how long that process takes, but I have heard um, just through word of mouth that it, it, it normally takes a little bit longer than that. Yeah, so Chapter 88 is is the one that to obtain if you want to become a charity status. That's correct. Uh, is that quite a sort of popular route for many NGOs? I also see lots of NGOs also have that uh, charity status. Why is that uh, in Hong Kong? Well, if you, I think the main thing is that it makes uh, an entity eligible for more types of funding. Mm. So a lot of uh, foundations, for example, that wish to give a grant, they will actually have as a requirement that the organization have Section 88 uh, tax exemption status. And then if you're just an average member of the public uh, and you want to make a donation, 
if you if you're making that donation to an entity that has that section 88 status then you'll be able to claim it um on your taxes later which is a great incentive um and you know something i encourage everyone to think about before march 31st uh so (laughs) so uh that that's you know some of the benefits of course um you know with that comes added responsibility so, uh, you know, it is important that Section 88 char- charities have um, good uh, regulatory policies and finances. I mean, we ourselves hired a certified accountant to be part of our team, and um, there's a requirement to, to have a financial audit, and, and uh, you know, the public expects annual reports. So um, that, that's also something to bear in mind. And there's some social, you know, and entities that do social change and social good that might decide not to set up necessarily as a Section 88 charity because it does give maybe a bit more flexibility. There are particular um, parameters that um, one must have to to be able to get the the tax exemption. So there's different routes, um, but generally a lot of the funding currently in Hong Kong um, for uh, charitable activities does require Section 88 status. That does create some challenges if it is taking longer for entities to get Section 88 status. So that means that there's a um, longer time frame that startups, for example, have a bit of a gap, which is certainly something that I experienced. Um, so I do think that there could be some adaptation perhaps within the um, philanthropic circles here in Hong Kong to consider how to better support startups in particular. Um, but but that is how it's currently set up. Especially when funding is so crucial in the initial stages uh, for for these uh, platforms, for NGOs. So without obtaining the Section 88, does that sort of stop certain funding coming at the beginning? Yes. So it is a bit of a hurdle. So when we first started, for example, um, a lot of the funding was kind of pending that um basically in my experience you know i was checking in on the section 88 status about a couple of times a week uh which (laughs) which helps um another thing that also uh is uh, probably one of the things that kept me up at night the most when we first started was getting opening a bank account actually just to receive the funding um so Mm. something that i think could be a great um initiative on some of the um, banking institutions um, when they're thinking of how to support charities. It's not only what they give or the charity partner they have, but can they have someone in each branch who is dedicated and trained in understanding Section 88 um, charities? That I, that I think would make a uh, make a big difference um, in, Did you have to in having people to at the-, the front line. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. You had you ended up sort of explaining to the bank staff what it was about and how how this bank account would help. Yes, I th- I think it 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 would um it's not only um what uh banking institutions are doing at the kind of top senior level uh institutional level but also at the front line how they can cater their services to charities. I think it's something that there's opportunity to develop, uh, and uh, I look forward to seeing that in Hong Kong. Is there a difference uh, between sort of opening a bank account for a regular business and opening a bank account for an NGO or charity? Certainly. I, I'm, to be honest, I'm not an, uh, a complete expert on that, but I, you know, it, it does take some time, and there's certain due diligence that needs to be done, and that, that explains some of the. Um, 
some of the time that it, it, it takes. But from my experience, you know, we set up and then around five or six months later, we had the bank account open and the Section 88 status. And having those key milestones, having legal status, a bank account and uh, tax exemption really opened up opportunities for us. However, um, that is a huge barrier to entry for, you know, some groups and initiatives um, or individuals who have great ideas who want to test something and don't necessarily want to go through such bureaucratic hurdles. So, for example, with our fellows, one of the things that we're looking into is how do we set up an alumni network and an alumni program? And we're looking into an idea of having an opportunity fund to support some of their initiatives and provide that kind of um, early stage support that we feel there's a we currently see a gap in in Hong Kong. Exactly. Yes. Uh, yeah. Because, like you said, at the initial stages, funding is vital. Let's talk about sort of other challenges faced by NGOs on a daily basis. From your experience uh, with your own NGO, NGOs that you've worked with in the past, and also the the NGOs that uh, Resolve also uh, currently helps. I mean, what what do you hear, uh, Victoria, about some of the the hardships that they're facing? Well, what's on everyone's minds right now is the kind of, um, you know, year that we've had in this city. I think it's been felt in multiple industries, not just the NGO sector. So, um, you know, we're, we're kind of all in it together. Um, but the combination of the political situation that we saw in Hong Kong and the disruption that was resulted, as well as the um, situation now with the um, public health concerns, it certainly had a huge impact on NGOs. Um, that being said, because actually, you know, you mentioned in the beginning, World NGO Day is to celebrate the successes and the collaboration. And I've seen incredible pulling together of NGOs. Um, I was just hearing, also just civil society in general, I was just hearing from one of my board directors and in his personal capacity, he's uh, raised over 10,000 face masks. So I think the community has wow. really come together. But there was a survey um, that was done this week by a task force of charities, and we took part in it. And it found that actually... Um, you know, really focusing on non-subvented charities that all the respondents, they, they responded to um, 90 different charities. They found that all the respondents um, were facing a reduction in their f- funding, either projected or, what, you know, funding that has been lost. Um, of these, 64% um, were re- facing a 30% or greater reduction, and even 18% were facing more than a 70% reduction. And of the people who answered this survey, you know, half of them have annual expenses that are less than five million. So we're really talking about some of the most grassroots, uh, small uh, NGOs. And this is a, a huge um, obstacle and a huge uncertainty for them. Um, right now, it's difficult for people to conduct the activities that they thought they'd be able to do. Um, many of them are not able to fundraise. Um, if some of them are relying on uh, corporate support, you know, it's also an unsure time in terms of how CSR will go. So this is something where a lot of us NGOs and NGO leaders were really pulling together to see um, how can we raise more awareness about it? And one of the things for me that um, kind of is amplified this by this is the importance of unrestricted multi-year uh, funding to help NGOs to be a little bit more re- uh, resilient and adaptable, particularly in these kinds of crisis situations. What's uh, uh, what's unrestricted uh, funding? So one of the things that we that really allowed us to be successful in our early 
stages was the fact that we got a grant partnership, uh, which included, um, you know, significant resources to cover our core costs as well as our programmatic costs. And so what this allowed us to do is really to, one, be able to move from a volunteer-led organization to actually have a core staff, which improved the quality of our programs and our fellowships. It allowed us to do a lot more public awareness work and social media campaigns. We were able to develop in this last year an impact management framework to be able to better track our impact. Um, you know, we've been able to be more responsive and transparent in our finances because we do have a certified accountant on the team. Now, a lot of the funding uh, currently in Hong Kong is project-based funding. That means that it's uh, typically, you know, uh, one-off funding for a particular project. And the challenge there is that when something like this happens that nobody can predict, um, you know, NGOs are kind of bound to follow certain KPIs, and then you have a, a, a great change. And it's much more difficult for NGOs to adapt and change the way they do the program to take that into account. Another thing that uh, core funding allows is making sure that NGOs have a kind of rainy day um, funding, so reserves, um, allowing an NGO to build up their reserves precisely so that, you know, if they have some sort of changes in unforeseen revenue streams, they can make it through. They have a couple of months of operating expenses so that they don't have to lay off their, their team and their staff. And ultimately, just like in the corporate sector, I'm sure if you talk to any Fortune 500 CEO, they would say that the most important investment is in the people, in the team. And that's really what's the number one priority for us. And in the NGO sector, when we're talking about people and salaries, we're talking about people who are social workers, community organizers, paralegals, teachers. I mean, these are real heroes, and they're the ones doing the work, and the work doesn't happen without them. So one of the benefits of core funding is that it allows NGOs to have that flexibility to adapt and to ensure that their core mission support is met. Is it more competitive to get these sort of core funding and, and unrestricted uh, donations? They're not one-off. They're, they're more sustainable, are they? Exactly. It's You know, there is a lot of discussion um, about... Uh, as an NGO, how, how, are, how are we sustainable? So part of that is being able to invest in the infrastructure and the capacity building that will put us in a better position to be able to fundraise after a certain grant runs out. But part of it is also making sure that we have a diversified pool of funding so that have, we have funding not only coming from grants or from the government, but also from corporates and from individual giving. And for us at uh, Resolve, for example, that's one of the things that we've really been working on in the past year. How can we get more individual giving? Um, we've built out a program of uh, monthly donors. We call them our resolvers. And how can we also engage corporates a little bit more strategically? Because last year, only 1% of our income actually came from corporates. Yet we see that there's a lot of opportunities for partnerships. So this is also, you know, what something that we're grappling with is how can we make sure we have diversified pool of funding? Because if something happens, um, you know, it, that has an impact on one stream, at least there's some backup options as well. Absolutely. Like, for example, the coronavirus situation. Uh, exactly. Uh, I'm sure a lot of uh, fundraising uh, projects or a lot of projects are really uh, on, on a bit of a pause. Uh, what other challenges uh, has this sort of posed uh, for, for NGOs, the coronavirus situation that, that you've seen so far? 
From what I've seen, I mean, even for ourselves, it's had an impact on some planned activities, um, and some of that we've had to uh, defer. I am optimistic that um, the situation will improve in the in the next couple of months. Um, so hopefully, it won't be too much uh, of an adaptation um, for NGOs that you know, have service users, uh, many of them haven't um, been able to come to their centers. Um, even for us, you know, to have people, uh, we've had to kind of work from home, like a lot of people, and just making sure that we can also get face masks um, for our team, let alone, you know, some NGOs who have service users, they're trying to distribute face masks to people who are more vulnerable and marginalized in the in the community. Um, so I think, and then, of course, there's the larger uh, uncertain environment that it creates. A lot of the uh, government offices are, are not at, you know, full capacity in terms of their services, which has an um, impact on NGOs that might have entry points with some of those frontline services. Um, it has an impact on uh, some of the corporate engagements and, and, and volunteering from corporates as well. So I think it's quite multifaceted. Yeah. Oh, it's just a, a terrible time for, for so well, many people uh, yeah. in the industry. But it's good to remain sort of optimistic. And it sounds like um, you guys are, are quite optimistic in, in your plans. Uh, you know, a few months time, things will be hopefully back to normal. Yeah. And I also try to see what can be the lesson that we can learn from these challenges. So as I was mentioning, I think one lesson can be that it's really important that NGOs have some funding for a rainy day, have some funding that allows that flexibility to adapt and be nimble and be responsive. I think it can also um, show on a larger level um, that, you know, Hong Kong can have different kinds of flexible working and work-life balance arrangements, which maybe can have some, you know, positive impact going forward from an HR perspective. And then um, I think I've seen some promising signs of people really pooling together. You know, we have gotten some um, corporates that have been establishing some emergency funding and checking in. And um, I think it can really be an opportunity for more uh, joint collaboration in the spirit of today, which is about the public, private and, you know, third sector, NGO sector partnerships. So, you know, hopefully we can we can take the best from these lessons and, and create a more dynamic charity sector going forward. Well said, Victoria. And finally, how can people sort of get involved? You know, there are a lot of great charities and great NGOs around here in Hong Kong. How can people sort of volunteer or give their expertise? How can people get involved? Yeah, so it's interesting because I thought a little bit about what would be the top five questions I would love to hear from people when they approach me, right? And so um, the first I would say is, you know, what is the best way I can help you right now? So for some people that might be volunteering, but then what kind of volunteering? It's it's great to let the NGO tell you what, what they're looking for and what they need, but for some it might be that they actually need your help with connections. For example, with corporates, a lot of times the CSR departments want the staff to be nominating charities, suggesting charities. And so that's one way that um, that someone can help if they want to nominate their charity within a corporate or if they want to actually do their own fundraising drive for, uh, for a charity. Um, so that, But for some, I mean, I have a volunteer right now and she's, you know, between jobs and she's helping me to establish, a, you know, do a little bit of research on the donor landscape. And that's a use, a good use of her skills. Um, so that kind of skilled volunteering is beneficial. 
I think a second question you, that is fair to ask is how do you track your impact and how do you define success? Um, another question uh, that I think isn't asked enough, to be honest, and I think is very important is how do your beneficiaries or, you know, your service users input into your strategy? So, how, you know, knowing how the NGO um, listens to their community and their constituents, I think is really important. And this is something that I wish was asked to me more. That's true, because when we sort of uh, donate to, to NGOs or charities, uh, that's sort of the, the end of it. We, we don't, it. There isn't really a mechanism to check back on how these service users uh, are being benefited. Totally. And, you know, there's a lot of focus on upwards accountability to the donor, but not so much on the downwards accountability of the NGO to the end user. Yes, yes. So I, I think that's something that I'd love, you know, I personally, if anyone were to ask me something like that, I'd, I'd definitely, uh, it would capture my attention. You'd have and then, good answers, though, because a lot of the Resolve fellows yes. come back and, and they become yes. mentors. So they've, they've yes, been so they, You have an some answer. Some of them, you know, become our interns <laughs> exactly. and yeah, ambassadors. Um, and then the fourth question would be, can you share your latest financial report or uh, your financial statement or annual report? I, I also think that that will give you a good indication of the transparency of the NGO, which I know for a lot of people is important. Um, and then the last question would be, where would you like to see your organization grow in a couple of years? Um, so getting a sense of where it is that the NGO wants to go um, and, and how you can feed into that um, vision. So, yeah, I, I think those are those are great questions that when you are looking to um, be involved in NGOs, you can consider. And then from our side, of course, um, you know, for for us, you know, following our social media, sharing our content, we've recently started a blog with our fellow stories, um, getting the word out that way and becoming an ambassador is certainly a way. And then, you know, if, if people are interested to support our work and our community leaders and the capacity building we do through our social justice fellowship and alumni network, be a resolver, um, support a voice. I so that, to, that's some concrete ways. I have to say, yeah, uh, Victoria, I think Resolve has a, has a fantastic uh, social media presence. I think uh, whoever does your social media uh, um, work deserves a medal. It's really sort of wide reach and it's always on the feed and, and it's easy to navigate on the website and from the Facebook page. So that's uh, wonderful. R- remind our listeners once again how we can find out more about uh, Resolve, your NGO. Uh, are you on other social media as well? Yes. Yeah, so thank you for that feedback. Um, I will tell our comms team, Angie and yes. Kelly, um, they'll be very happy to hear that. And then our website is www.resolvehk.org. And you can find us on Facebook at Resolve Foundation Hong Kong, as well as on Instagram and LinkedIn. Excellent. Meanwhile, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Victoria Wisniewski Otero, the founder and CEO of Resolve. Thank you very much indeed, Victoria. And we'll chat to you. you. Thank you. Chat to you soon. Bye for now. Bye.